You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Ah, well, good morning again. The, uh, these last two Sundays... We have met Gideon and Elijah and gained some insight into how they engaged in spiritual warfare. We noticed that they weren't exceptional at first. Gideon was a nobody, the least member of his family and the most insignificant of tribes. Elijah, the Bible insists, he was an ordinary person just like us. He had no superhuman powers. He prayed fervently that it would not rain, and for three and a half years there was severe drought. And then he prayed again, and it rained. These stories show us that we are called and we are equipped for spiritual combat. Our epistle this morning reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, I know that doesn't necessarily feel that way in the world we live in right now, but Paul reminds us that our fight is really against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My wife and I have seen a lot of this conflict by working with the persecuted church. It is often a life-and-death struggle. Uh, Just one example that I'd like to bring to your attention. If you've been keeping up with the news, you know that in Afghanistan, with the departure of U.S. and NATO troops, the Taliban are aggressively retaking control of the country. I'd ask you to think about what that means for your brothers and sisters. They need our prayers. Many of them are having to flee for their lives. Some of them have been killed. Now, there are many countries where Christians suffer, and if you want to know more about that, I have just a few booklets left uh, uh, called the World Watch List. You, uh, there's, there's out there on the side, so feel free to, uh, to take one if you'd like to know more and be praying more for your brothers and sisters in persecution. For those of you online, you can go to Open Doors USA and uh, download that. This morning, I want us to meet another Old Testament hero. And I want to focus on what I believe is one of the most intense spiritual battles ever fought. However, it is one that any one of us could have fought And I believe that we will see a vital application for us today in the midst of the cultural, political, and religious wars raging around the world. Our spiritual hero this morning has quite a backstory. I'd like to just take a minute and let's imagine him as he's reached his 80th birthday. Now, I don't think we have any that are 80 years old yet in here, yet. I'm getting closer. Um, But I'd like to think that that would be a natural milestone for reflection. 
the first thing I'd observe about this man is that he should be retired. Maybe suffering a little arthritis or reduced energy, but overall enjoying the good life. Instead, he's leading a flock of smelly sheep in the wilderness. He's all alone and wondering what might have been. He had attended the most prestigious university of his day. He was wealthy. He had been wealthy. He lived in a palace, wore the best clothing, had servants, and influence with the top political leaders of his country. He wielded genuine power. However, he threw it all away because he saw a slave being beaten, and in a fit of anger, he killed the oppressor. This man of the elite class chose to identify with the persecuted rather than the persecutors. When his boss heard of it, our hero had to run for his life. And for the next 40 years, this man, who once was one of the highest ranking officials in his country, became a nobody. And he probably wondered, what might have he accomplished had he stayed in the king's palace? Certainly, much more for the people than what was accomplished by eliminating one single persecutor. One rash moment changed his life, and he probably figured his life was a total waste. Of course, I'm talking about Moses. While living in exile in Midian, Moses probably thought his life was over. In fact, he was about to be recruited for the most amazing and impossible assignment. He didn't realize that those 40 years in the wilderness caring for sheep was actually God's graduate school. I mean, what better training could Moses have had for shepherding two to three million Hebrews? I imagine Moses battled despair, maybe even depression. He possessed no savings account or investments with which to start a business. There were no industries in Midian where he could find employment. He depended on the generosity of a foreign family. So 40 years in the wilderness, Moses may have looked back on his life and thought, what a waste. Maybe some of you have had similar emotions in the past. Maybe you're retired and you think your useful life is over. Or maybe you're in a stage of life where you wonder what difference you can possibly make in this troubled world. I have some good news for you. No matter your age, God can and will use you. Are you willing to wait patiently for God to reveal his plan? Remember, Moses tried to serve God with his own strength and failed miserably. Then Moses gave up and resigned himself to the tedium of tending sheep, not realizing that the purpose of his life was soon to be revealed. Now, there are many sermons I could preach from the life of Moses. I have 28 devotions that I've written about them in my book. You're going to have to wait for the book to be published. It's be a few more months. But you know the highlights. The call of God from the burning bush. And how Moses and his brother demand that Pharaoh set God's people free. And the ten, ten plagues, each of which, by the way, was a demonstration of God's dominance over a specific local Egyptian god. There was the Passover and Moses leading the people out of Egypt until they were trapped by the Red Sea. And in that hopeless circumstance with Pharaoh's army bearing down on them, 
God divides the water. And the Hebrews walk to the other side on dry land. The Egyptians chase them and the waters roll back over them, wiping out Israel's oppressors. Finally, they arrive at Mount Sinai, where a covenant ceremony takes place. It was actually formatted a lot like a wedding ceremony. Yahweh will be Israel's God and care for them. And Israel agrees that Yahweh will be their one and only God. They will worship no other gods. Later, God through his prophets repeatedly emphasized that he was the husband to Israel. So that's the context for our Old Testament reading this morning in Exodus 32. I want us to focus on this passage because I believe this is Moses' greatest moment. This is where he engages in intense spiritual warfare. And frankly, the stakes couldn't be higher. An 80-plus-year-old man shows us how we can make a truly meaningful difference for our family, our nation, and even the world. So here's the situation. Moses has gone up on the mountain to get the details of the relationship God will have with his people. There's a lot of ground to cover. And the days pass into weeks. And the people begin to wonder what happened to their leader. Now, six weeks doesn't seem like a very long period in which to lose one's faith. Why would people turn so quickly away from God after all the miracles he had performed? Surely the securing of their freedom ought to earn Yahweh a little loyalty? Why would the children of Israel even consider making, much less worshiping, a gold statue of an animal? But then maybe we shouldn't be surprised. You see, the prayers of the Hebrews were answered. They received what they wanted, freedom from the slavery. Isn't that the way we like our religion? We prefer a one-way relationship. We have a need, so we pray, God answers, and hopefully we receive what we want. Put a coin in the religion machine, and out pops the desired result. But God doesn't see it that way. He takes the relationship seriously. And he expects his chosen bride, who he rescued from oppression, to be faithful. And yet here she is, on the honeymoon, committing adultery. When you frame it in that way, maybe we can understand God's sudden burst of anger in our reading this morning. Listen to the emotion as he speaks to Moses. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You ever, ever said that? Uh, your spouse ever say to you, those are your children, not my children? <laughs> That's a little bit what it sounds like, doesn't it? Now Moses has seen God angry before. He got a glimpse at the burning bush when Moses suggested God send someone else to rescue his people. But this outburst is much worse First, God disowns the Hebrews. They aren't his people anymore. Moses, they belong to you, and you deal with them. But God doesn't stop there. And what Moses heard next absolutely stunned him. Here's my paraphrase. Leave me alone, God says. I'm so angry, I will destroy them all. And I'm going to start over. Moses, I will make you, I will make a great nation out of you. Has anyone ever had an offer like that? 
Maybe Noah, God wiped out the whole world and started over with one family. I suppose he could do it again as creator. However, Abraham received the promise of countless children. Now, technically, since Moses was a descendant of Abraham, God wasn't violating his promise. But still, Moses faced a dilemma. Here was his big chance to escape a job of being, a job he didn't want, by the way, of leading a bunch of ingrates and infidels who turned their backs on God at every opportunity. The slate could be wiped clean and he could become patriarch of a great nation. And plus, hadn't God just said this was his will? On the other hand, <clears throat> Moses acted on principle when he left Pharaoh's palace and chose to align with the Hebrews. They were his people. Could he really turn his back on them now? If only God, if only Moses could calm down God, maybe he could present another perspective. Now we read this morning in the ESV that Moses implored the Lord as God. There are various other translations I've checked. It says Some say Moses sought the favor of the Lord, or Moses entreated the Lord as God, or Moses tried to pacify the Lord as God. The most intriguing paraphrase I've seen conveys the idea of Moses touching or massaging the face of God, trying to calm him down. Of course, Moses couldn't literally see or touch God's face, but somehow Moses attempts to calm an angry God so that he might speak words that would save his people. In spiritual battle, we are confronted with this challenge. If all we do is pray for personal needs for ourselves and our friends, we will never know God the way Moses did. And we will never make a significant impact on the world. Are we willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God and plea for the salvation of people? Are we willing to pray for the lost based on God's reputation. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 9, where Moses gives some detail about his intercession for the people. Listen to how he pleads with the Almighty Yahweh. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, David, uh, your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness." Moses concludes, for they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Now that's serious prayer. And to add to the intensity of the intercession, Moses makes an amazing offer. In Exodus 32, verse 30, he tells the people that he will go up to the Lord saying, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And here's what he prays to the Lord. 
Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Pay close attention to those words. Have any of us ever said to people in rebellion, I will go up to the Lord for you? I'm afraid we take <coughs> ourselves too seriously and we don't take our ministry seriously enough. Moses understood the crisis and realized the only solution was atonement. So Moses negotiates with God. He prays in essence, here's the deal. I admit the people have sinned and you forgive them, but if you don't, if you can't forgive them, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses is doing something unbelievably heroic. He is offering himself as a sacrifice for his people. I would submit that may be the boldest prayer in history. It's the most Christ-like prayer possible. Moses is consumed by his passion for lost souls and is willing to lay down his life, not just his physical life, but his eternal life as well, if only the people of Israel could be saved. Now that's true love. Actually, Moses proposes to do what Jesus will in fact do 1,400 years later. And I believe that's why Jesus insisted that Moses wrote about him, saying, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses speaks with such perfect insight into God's character and purpose that shortly before Calvary, he will stand with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration and talk with Jesus about his atoning death in Jerusalem and what that will accomplish. I would like to suggest that if we followers of Christ could employ this kind of prayer, the world would not be the same. The Apostle Paul demonstrated this in Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning the Jews, is that they may be saved. And to show how serious he is, Paul writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul knew he was secure in Christ, but those words express his love for the lost. So how did God respond to Moses' intense prayers? Back to Exodus 32, verse 14. The Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord relented. Actually, I think a better translation of that word is the Lord changed his mind. Thirty years ago, my friend and co-author brother Andrew wrote a book called And God Changed His Mind. And many people objected to that title, arguing that God is unchanging. He chose us before the creation of the world. He knows the beginning and the end. He's omniscient, author of providence. How could God possibly change his mind? Now, of course, there's a lot of truth to that. But that raises a question. Why bother at all if everything is predetermined? Why didn't Moses just submit to God's revealed will in Exodus 32.10? Moses passionately attempted to persuade God not to carry out his threats. 
In my studies of Scripture, I've discovered at least seven times in the Old Testament when God changed his mind. Same word that was used here. For example, God revealed to the prophet Amos that he would send a plate of locusts. And Amos, Amos prayed, O sovereign Lord, please forgive us or we will not survive. God changed his mind and said, I will not do it. In Jeremiah, God tells the weeping prophet that he will not carry out his planned destruction of the nation if the nation renounces its evil ways. Later, God orders Jeremiah to preach in the temple courtyard, saying, perhaps they will listen and turn from their evil ways. Then I will change my mind about the disaster I am ready to pour out on them because of their sins. And don't forget the prophet Jonah, who was told to go to Nineveh and preach against the Assyrians, who were terrorizing Israel. Jonah's message, God was about to destroy the city. But when the Assyrians repented, God changed his mind. Now, did God mean what he said about destroying Nineveh? Yes, he meant it. But when the people uh, follow after God's desire for them to repent, he, will, he pulls back from that judgment. Here's one more example from the opposite perspective. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God revealed, I sought a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. It sounds like God desired for someone to talk him out of that judgment. So what does this mean for us and the spiritual warfare we face today? I want to read to you... Uh, from a couple of New Testament passages. First, from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, and here's the key phrase, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then um, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's will is clearly revealed here. Shouldn't we desire what he desires? Surely, if so, surely that should affect our prayers. Richard John Newhouse wrote about what we've been discussing. The prayer of Moses reflects the same understanding of prayer to be found in the New Testament. Remember the parable of the unjust judge and the importunate widow, <coughs> which Jesus told to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. The judge cared not at all about justice, but he finally gave the widow what she wanted simply to stop her from bothering him. In the same way, Jesus says, will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Prayer creates space for possibilities that would not otherwise be possible. 
the importunate widow pleaded against her adversary. How much more persistently ought we to pray for others, especially those who are our adversaries and gods? The elect are elected not to be against others, but for others. Now, I should just note, I'm not preaching universalism, and I'm not saying that eventually all will be saved. We need to take seriously the many warnings in the New Testament that some, perhaps many, many will be condemned. However, it also clearly stated that God's desire is for all to be saved. As we engage in spiritual battle in this world, that should also be our desire. And that's why I believe our prayers for the lost can make a real difference. Moses shows us that such prayer can literally save lives. I'll close with this quote from Andrew Murray. Who can say what power a church, I'd like to insert in here, Christ Our Hope Church in Fort Collins. Who can say what power Christ Our Hope could develop and exercise if it gave itself to the work of prayer day and night for the coming of the kingdom, for God's power on his servants and his word, for the glorifying of God in the salvation of souls. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Thank you that we are not powerless. The rebellion against you is fierce, but we know that King Jesus wins. So, like the example of your servant Moses, teach us how to fight this spiritual war, to be part of your solution to the world's problems. May Christ our Hope Church be a congregation of prayer warriors. Raise up men and women like Gideon, Elijah, and Moses from this congregation to advance your kingdom in this world. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.